Brian, are we all queued up? Are we ready to boogie? Yeah, I mean, if you want to call it boogie again. <clears throat> I do want to call it boogie. You and your words. Okay, Batman, let's do this. I'm thing. from the Midwest. Let's go. Apparently, you calling yourself Batman last week is going to stick. And I'm, I mean, I was cool to call myself Robin for the joke, but the fact that it's going to stick is not okay. <laughs> Never call I think yourself. You brought Robin. it up. Yeah. You brought it up. I, so yeah, that's I, a. Rookie. Put this on me, Ricky Bobby. Yeah, I, that's much better. Okay, well, we'll find out who's first after this. Okay, this is this is episode, episode 47. forty-seven. So welcome to episode forty-seven of the Hot Isle. I am one of your co-hosts. I'm Brian Carpenter, and with me, Brett Piatti. Good morning. Good morning. I love you, Brent. I'm just going to put that out there. Is, you're going to put that out there, and then what? I have to reciprocate. Otherwise, I look like an asshole. So I love you too, Brian. That's going to get framed. So I don't even know how to frame a video, but we're going to figure it out. Let's get to the show. It's getting a little awkward. Let's get to the show. And um, the goal of this show, we're going to do something fun here. We're going to talk to some people who have a different perspective on, on solving problems. And the goal of this show is really to kind of find out how – um, you know, the layers four through seven and solving kind of this new application world. Let's look at it a little bit different, right? So developers are changing their software's eating the world and all these kind of things, but software still has problems that it needs solved. And how do we solve those problems, right? So we look at automation, we look at orchestration, we look at things like that. But what about things like application firewalls? What about load balancing? If that's such a thing, you know, what about all these other things that honestly, I don't even know about. So let's get straight to it. Let's talk to our guest. And with us this week, we have Hitesh Patel from F5. Hitesh, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for the time. And I love that you're a local boy. You're here in Dallas. You're wearing your Mustangs hat and repping the town proud. Yeah, so <laughs> Brent could be the outsider. Brent is from, uh, Brent's from Arizona. And so he wishes he was from Texas. He's got all the heat, but none of the cool. Right? So let's get this thing going. I thought that was funny, and you didn't even laugh. <laughs> I was on mute, and then by the time I got done laughing, I was, got myself off. It was just too late. Man. It was just weird at that point. Okay, so um, Hitesh, thanks for joining us again, and um, let's talk a little bit about you. So what it, you, your job right now says solutions architect at F5, um, but I have a feeling you, you know the, the title doesn't necessarily level set exactly what you're doing there, because I see you doing lots of cool things. So tell us what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so, um, you know, solution architects at F5, what we... Uh, what we generally do um, in very, very broad strokes is, uh, you know, we serve as, a, as an interface between customers, uh, product development, product marketing, and, and, and going into our long-term strategy into um, our executives and things like that. So we're kind of this middle ground, this bridge between all the little tentacles of F5 that are out there working and, and doing things all day. And we want to make sure that, uh, that uh, when we do those things, uh, that they actually come together at some point and into uh, usable solutions uh, for our customers. So my focus um, at F5 um, is around all around cloud security. And, and, uh, and apparently, apparently you're also, not only are you in cloud security and uh, an evangelist for F5 and a solutions architect, you also are willing to answer the the the, fr the phone at the front desk, and I love that. I, I am I am unplugging my phone as we speak. I muted everything <laughs> except the uh, the desk phone, which you is muted. an old like. Hey, you know what? Sometimes the analog will come back to bite you. So you know what? Exactly. You might want to think about refactoring your home phone into something <laughs> else. But in the meantime, 
we're gonna you, you, uh, we're glad you locked down all your digital uh, disruptions but uh, that analog yeah. one got in there mea culpa the one that the one that i had left was the the old school like desk phone with a copper pair and that's the one that got me yeah <laughs> sorry about I that don't know who's calling that right now probably someone that wants me to buy a car warranty or something yeah well we apologize for interrupting you i don't know if, know if i don't even know if you knew where you were i got so uh, excited to hear a house phone i've heard one of those in like five years yeah so so let me let me uh, pardon the uh, rude interruption by some telemarketer there. Um, so yeah, so so the job what I focus on is uh, is is cloud and and security technology at F five and really, um, I'm you know I'm kind of this hybrid role right now. Um, what we're trying to do is make sure that we can leverage all the services um, that F five has to deliver um, for a layer four through seven stack in new environments. And I think cloud. I actually hate the term cloud. That's the bucket that we use uh, internally. But but I actually think things more through uh, programmability and orchestration lens, right? It's it's not necessarily just cloud because that automatically pigeons you hold, pigeonholes you into things, you know, a public cloud mindset or a private cloud mindset. Um, what I like to say is I want to leverage um, uh, programmability, orchestration features of our platform and build a way to actually deliver um, all the value that F5 has to offer into these new types of environments. So, you know, the buzzwords out there are things like Docker, things like AWS, ACI, NSX, OpenStack. All of that is is the stuff that I deal with on a daily basis, and my counterparts too. We've got a couple peers that that also focus on this area. So, it's really about making sure that we're plumbing into these ecosystems, and then uh, you know, as we as we kind of evolve the messaging, how we're actually leveraging application developers and starting to talk their language. And that's, uh, I come from an app dev uh, um, uh, history. I used to be an application developer. Then I changed to the dark side and became a network guy for a while. Um, so I, I have lived both of those lives uh, in previous roles and things like that. So um, I think that, you know, it's important that we start targeting um, those folks within organizations because they're the ones that are consuming these services and they're the ones that can get the most value out of them. So an app dev guy that switches to the dark side, as you said. Now that now the app dev guys are are the new cool kids in town. So what uh, are you getting back into that? I mean, I have seen you kind of on GitHub and some of the other places, but are you getting back to your roots, man? Uh, you know, I don't think I ever left it. To be totally honest with you, I I, um, I I bounced around and did a bunch of stuff. I worked for an ISP in Oregon. I did sysadmin, Unix admin, and uh, I I've always been coding. Um, now, maybe not writing whole application stacks, but I've always been scripting something, automating something. I think the last uh, five years or so, um, you know, there's actually a market around that now, right? There's a name, there's a label called DevOps. But, you know, back in the day when I did that um, and, and was automating web hosting, um, you know, that was just scripting. It was a Unix guy that knew how to script and use Perl, right? So, um, I've always been doing that. Um, I probably stepped away from true application development for a while, but now you know I'm right back in it, man. I'm, I've been uh, actually it's it's been one of the more rewarding things of this year is going back to that those roots and being able to actually work on uh, on large software projects again. Very cool. So you started behind the keyboard, then became a system engineer. Probably worked you know in pre-sales with customers. Yep. Now as a solutions architect, do you find yourself more behind the desk or in front, you know, talking to customers and then uh, going back to the back to the engineering team. How does that work out for you? So I'm I'm on the road. I'm out in front of customers usually two to three weeks a month. Um, that's one of the key uh, parts of this job is making sure that we are out in front of customers, um, listening to their needs, but also you know, 
giving our strategy and, and trying to set um, what we're doing for the next uh, two years. I think one of the, the issues in the market right now is there's just so many options, right? So customers, frankly, are just confused. Nobody knows. And so what ends up happening is decisions get made because essentially a pencil was dropped on the list. And I've actually seen that happen. You know, let's just make a list and randomly pick one because we don't know which one to do, right? We've got to start somewhere. Um, and, and so I'm in front of customers quite a bit. Um, the, the other side of that, the other half of that time uh, is spent uh, usually uh, within uh, a Seattle or, or San Jose office of F5, uh, talking to our product development folks, talking to my peers, my counterparts, <clears throat> excuse me, leadership, to make sure that we're, we're rapidly um, getting what customers uh, need into the development chain and, and getting out supported rock solid products behind that. Um, and that's probably been the biggest uh, challenge for F5 over the last year is transitioning to a much uh, quicker pace in terms of delivery of solutions for this market. And I think um, we're, we're now on the right end of that. That was a challenge for us. Um, we're a big company. We have a huge customer base we have to service, and we're loyal to those customers. We want to make sure that those environments stay running. At the same time, we're being asked to change the entire way we do things, right? So navigating that has been uh, has been rocky, but I think uh, we're on the right side of it now, and we got a good uh, a good way to actually release and, and get things out to market as fast as possible. Very cool. Yeah, <clears throat> agile is the name of the game, man. So it sounds like yep. you guys are are kind of refactoring and figuring out how you're going to go to market faster and meet the requirements in the uh, of your customers. Yep, exactly. It's uh, it's funny. We make a joke sometimes. It's uh, you know, get it. Our, our model has moved to a GitHub first model, right? Um, almost to the point where when when we have a, a solution architect or somebody creates something, um, we'll it'll go out on GitHub before anybody even knows about it, and then we fill in the 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 you know the corporate F5 behind that, which is support and documentation and all those things. So um, that's a that's a weird thing for a company like F5. We're not used to doing things that way. Used to delivering a package, and that package is support, documentation, all that stuff. And we've kind of had to flip that on our head, on its head, and and say, all right, let's let's get this out, and then and fill in the pieces afterwards for a, a full supportable solution. So you're saying you're following the agile manifesto by getting out working software over documentation. Uh, well, you know, I, I try to release with documentation, but uh, I can't say that that always happens. I'm as guilty. And then, you know, there's always a quality of the documentation. But the the method, the methodology is actually, um, and we're actually required to do this now when we uh, release anything on GitHub, is um, the developers are documenting, uh, are writing the documentation as they code. Um, so that's, that's a big thing. Uh, everything we release is... Uh, you know, the, the source itself has markdown in it so we can derive documentation from it, right? So um, cool. that's one of the big shifts, right? We used to develop software and then we'd have a whole documentation team that would go through and then document things. Now developers are writing the documentation and, and the doc team is really going through and just cleaning that up, you know, grammatically and things like that. But realistically, when you see documentation from F5, especially on things like GitHub, that is the, the developer that actually wrote that documentation, which I think is a great thing. Yeah, it's getting closer to the source, man. So Absolutely. that's the, the source of truth is is probably more pure than. Oh, we're going to talk about source of truth today too. I got a oh, I got okay. a good one there for you. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Brian, are you going to let me talk? Okay, why don't you take source of truth, Brian? No, you take source of truth. You got no, this. No, you go. Okay. Uh, it's weird. I almost like we need to split this thing back up again and not be on the same podcast together. That's what's happening now. Um, okay. So, I mean, you know, Hitesh, you said this thing here, Brent brought up the source of truth. And honestly, I haven't been reading as much as Brent's been reading. So I have no idea what you guys are talking about. 
So somebody want to yeah. explain what Source of Truth is all about? So Source of Truth, so I got a good story about this, right? So I have a non-IT story, and I like to use this a lot because some of these concepts are just so out there that you gotta you got to step back from it. So uh, I, what Source of Truth is, is uh, always telling the truth. It's, it's, it's like a dictator, right? Source of Truth says, this is what I want everyone to do, and then you go do that, and he expects everybody, he or she, expects them to go do that. And that's that's the quick way to explain Source of Truth. So you have a system, and it says, this is my view of the world, and I'm going to enforce that view of the world on everything, on all my little underlings, on all my subordinate you know devices, right? Um, and you'll often have, uh, you know, like a top-level orchestrator, if you can imagine me drawing here, right? You've got a orchestrator at the top of a stack and then that flows down into different systems um, and those are the subordinate systems so that top level orchestrator is going to be very selfish it's like a dictator and it says you will do what i tell you to do um, and that's kind of source of truth right it holds everything it's like the central god controller uh, of an environment um, and what i've found is and we've been doing this um, you know, in the real world. And, and the focus for us has been not just the initial deployment. I think a lot of uh, customers, a lot of solutions get lost in, hey, how do I go deploy something, X, whatever it may be? Um, and then and, and then it's like hands off, right? Like, okay, what, you know, I'm done. My job is done. We deployed something. But that's never actually the life cycle of anything in a real world environment, right? You're your deployments are going to change over time. You're going to have to address security issues. You're going to have to address all these operational issues. Um, and what we found is when you have what I call a strict source of truth, which is this very top-down kind of uh, um, imposing model um, on, in an environment where you need operational flexibility, strict source of truth causes you a problem. And the reason for that is because that source of truth now needs to understand what all those subordinate devices are doing. So it's basically like saying, if you're a manager at a company, uh, what is a manager's job? A manager's job usually is to manage the time of their subordinates, right? Uh, their manager's job is not usually to actually go do the job of the subordinates, right? They're not actually out there. Uh, like, for instance, my manager is not out there doing the solution architect job. He's out there managing the solution architect's time and making sure that we got what we need to go do our job. Um, when you impose strict source of truth, what ends up happening is that top-level device, that top-level thing, needs to understand all the context and all the domain-specific knowledge for its subordinate devices. And we'll get into this a little bit. I'll expand on this concept a little bit in a second. Uh, so I invented, and I actually didn't invent a new word. I stole a word from Stephen Colbert. Um, and we actually presented this uh, at a couple at Agility, which was uh, two weeks ago. So I invented this thing called source of truthiness. Um, and that's what we found actually works in the real world. And source of truthiness is layers of truth, right? It's, it's like an onion. And the thing that we're trying to deliver, let's say we've got a, a big IP appliance, which is F5's core product that's delivering some service. That's at the middle of that onion. And then we're going to put layers on top of that. And every time you put a layer, you add a layer there, you're, you're removing or you're abstracting that service a little bit. And you're actually removing some of that domain-specific knowledge. So... We're trying to say, when you're delivering a service, it's not okay to, to assume that the person trying to consume that thing is an expert in your widget. Um, and when you impose strict source of truth in the real world, especially when you try to operationalize things, um, that's what ends up happening. So we've got this thing called source of truthiness, and what we do is we hide stuff. That's really what it is, and you can call that abstracting, but abstracting is hiding things, right? 
It's making things simpler and making it so that that top level source of truth only needs to know the very minimum set of things, of data points, of IPs, whatever little data you need to drive a deployment. Get the minimal set of that to actually drive a deployment and then allow all the people that have what we call domain specific knowledge. So that would be in our case would be like F5 administrators, right? They, they've invested years in learning our platform and knowing how to leverage and turn all the knobs and things like that. Let them apply that knowledge at the right layer rather than exposing that all up to some central source of truth. Um, there's a couple of examples of this um, out there. Uh, we have an integration with uh, with Cisco ACI, and actually our first um, our first iteration of that integration was uh, we we're trying to expose everything. And I use the example for for network guys, you know, for folks that have been in the network world forever. Um, how often do you look at, at SNMP MIB and say this is how I should configure my box? Right? No, that, that, not very never, often, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's exactly what a lot of uh, a lot of what was happening actually in the market is. Everyone was saying, "Well, we'll just dump our schema, whatever, via a REST API into some other system, and that's a better solution now because you could do anything." Uh, problem is, nobody asked to do everything. Um, they wanted to do five things, right? And so, what we're trying to do is use this concept of truthiness, which is really abstracting or hiding some of this this domain specific information. To expose a simplified service. Now, it's still rich on the back end. We still do, still do lots of cool things. We can do very advanced things in layer four through seven. But that doesn't mean we expose all of that to uh, to the rest of the world in, a, in an orchestration environment. So that's my take on source of truth or truthiness. And I'll give credit to Stephen Colbert for stealing his word. Yeah, let's awesome. see if we Did can they... get him to let's see if we can get him to show up after this and decide whether or not he uh, he wants to take <laughs> Slam ownership me with a lawsuit. With it. Yeah. <laughs> He doesn't, he doesn't seem very litigious. So uh, <laughs> speaking of people who are litigious, or at least, you know, maybe keep a lot of good secrets, um, you know, Brent, we had a little This Week in Tech History, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, so <clears throat> so This Week in Tech History, and, and this, honestly, uh, this company is my source of truthiness. Uh, so in uh, uh, on 19 August 2004, Google IPO'd selling over 22 million shares at a starting price of $85. Um, and many people became instant millionaires and or billionaires. So now they're trading at $800 a share. Uh, the revenue is $75 billion. They have 60,000 employees. So I got to ask you, Hitesh, uh, were you one of those instant millionaires or <laughs> billionaires? You know, the, there's there's been many points in my life where I've kicked myself and, and I'm doing it right now. Uh, <laughs> I unfortunately was not. I uh, I have not uh, caught the the IPO wave as well as I probably should have. I did get some Facebook stock early, but that has not been anywhere near as uh, as lucrative as if I had got some Google. I had, I think, when they IPO'd, I had a small amount of Google stock. So I I, I wouldn't say I'm a millionaire. I may be the thousand there if that's a thing. Um, so yeah, uh, unfortunately, I I did not have enough invested to begin with to become a millionaire but google's been good to me i can google things and it enables me to make lots of money other ways so yeah you know you know considering dallas has this concept of the uh millionaire i think the fact (laughs) i think in reality if you can you know the fact that you were a thousand there you know which is oh yeah how i feel on every other friday or so um, I can totally go rent a you know Aston Martin and go troll around shops at Legacy. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so we're we're millionaires in our own minds, you know, down here exactly. in, the, in the oil district. So, exactly. uh, is there anything you know when you talk about Google and, and leveraging it? And obviously, we use it a lot for our jobs, and it's kind of truthy-ish. 
Uh, are there parts of Google that like you use that aren't just Google search and Gmail where it's kind of like, man, that's so, that's something that is in my job and in my life and I never thought it would be. So, so I got a good story around this. Um, Pokemon Go, right? Boom. Uh, yeah, All there day. you go. You, you just day. walked right in. I'm a level it, right? 23. Let's do this thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so Pokemon Go is interesting. Uh, so Pokemon Go, I, I don't know if anybody... Uh, if you delve into it, it's actually implemented, um, and it's partly, I don't know if it's owned or they're using a technology platform by a company called Niantic Mm -hmm. and Niantic, uh, is a company that Google bought and Niantic had this, uh, game that that's a predecessor of Pokemon Go called Ingress. Yep. Yes, sir. One of my colleagues actually got me hooked on this, this game. And I was, I was a crazy person walking around the middle of the night, uh, playing Ingress, but um, the funny thing about that is the the way uh, Pokemon Go is implemented is actually implemented on Google Cloud, right? So they they implemented the whole thing on Google Cloud, and uh, the the week that Pokemon Go dropped, I think they released it here um, in the states the week of one of our summits. So we had a summit up in Seattle. We got all of our best and brightest in the SE community, and myself and a bunch of uh, product marketing, product development folks. We had a big summit up there, and that's one of our yearly things where we train everyone and. Pokemon Go dropped that week, and it was funny because we were talking about it, and I just made a an off reference to one of our um, to one of our B- VPs right before he went on stage, and he had Pokemon Go. He's like trying to figure out what to do, and he's looking for Pokemon in the room, and we went into this thing of like, you know, how it's implemented and this and that, and he just looks at me, he's like, dude, you really do geek out on stuff, don't you? And I was like, yeah, of course, man, that's what I do for a living, right? But the interesting thing about that is. Um, you know, I started digging into that, and I was like, you know, how how did they build this, right? Because I think a lot of folks will look at that and say, well, you know, it was built on public cloud, and it just works. And if you looked at some of the technical challenges they had, um, it's funny because they had a lot of the technical challenges that we see customers have with, with large applications. They had scaling problems. There was some downtime associated with it. Now, if from the outside, you'd think, well, it's implemented in public cloud, so all this stuff should have been part of the infrastructure, Right. Um, and, and what we found was even on Google, they're not, you know, Google has PhDs. They've got some of the smartest people in the world working for them trying to solve these problems. Um, and what we learned out of that and speaking to some folks that I know, uh, in the industry that, you know, and people that, uh, not necessarily work there, but are close to Google, um, they found that a lot of the same issues that customers have right now, like in their legacy data centers actually became a problem in uh, in this massively public cloud-enabled infrastructure for Pokemon. And one of the big things was they have to prevent cheating. So to prevent cheating, they have to maintain state. And when you maintain state, you have to share that state. And we go but right back to one of the core problems that we've had in, in the application delivery world uh, forever. And so it was kind of a cool uh, little side thing. Um, I didn't expect it to work out that way, but I was like, it's a nice little thing to talk about now. I say, you know, there's still a need for the services that we offer at layer four through seven, right? And and we have to adapt to that new market. And the question that I had, in fact, in front of the whole room was, um, is F5 in that infrastructure, right? What do we need to do to get to those developers and say, hey, before you go release this game to billions of people, and I think Nintendo's stock went up by billions, right? Um, before you go out there and do that, can we get to those developers 
and, and talk to them and say, hey, we have solutions to these scaling problems, to these infrastructure problems that nobody cares about. Nobody playing Pokemon Go cares about this stuff unless you're in, you know, you're Hitesh Patel doing application delivery control and you happen to be focused on this, right? But, you know, my, my kids or my wife or anybody else that's out there, that we've got some moms here in the neighborhood. I've seen them playing Pokemon Go. They're hooked on it. They don't care about that, and they shouldn't. They shouldn't care about it. They should never have to deal with that sort of stuff. And that's kind of the mantra that F5 goes with is that those infrastructure problems should never impact a person's life, whether that's Pokemon Go or banking application or any other infrastructure application that you're delivering to a large set of people. Those things should never affect your daily life, right? And that's what we work towards. And the question that I had and the question the VP that we're, that was presenting um, he had was, how is F5 going to going to translate and transform itself to fit those consumers of our services, right? And I think that's what we're working on right now. Um, it's interesting because I think a lot of folks think um, that, you know, we're going to move to public cloud. It's this massive compute environment. We can scale up, scale down, all these things. But you're, at the end of the day, you're passing packets on a wire, and there's still problems associated with that. One of the bigger frustrations that I have with the industry sometimes is that we can't get um, extensions to protocols. We can't get these things that have been in working groups forever actually implemented. Um, there's there's uh, RFCs out there that have been written for extending DNS to solve these problems, and we can't ever get them implemented widely throughout the internet. So we're still stuck trying to build you know, 21st century applications in this massively scalable environment. And frankly, we're still using protocols that were basically set in the 90s or 80s, right? We still have to do that. IPv6 in the States, at least, is I don't even see it anywhere. I ask customers about v6 all the time, and everyone's like, yeah, we're not even worried about it. APAC is a different story. But, um, but these, these cause problems that we still have to address um, in, those, uh, in those form factors, especially in public cloud. So did you get? Uh, did you actually get into Niantic and get them talking to F five at all? Or are we still? I mean, they, they no, obviously had so. massive. Talk about affecting people's lives when they had scale issues and my app would crash. I had yeah. massive anxiety because if that Charizard got away, that's yeah. my world, right? I mean, exactly, right? Yeah. So it's yeah, been a lot so of fun. So, so I'm not sure. I gotta, I gotta ping the account team that's there. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if we're there yet or not. But it was a, a, a lot of times. What you got to do is you got to set the question out there. You got to set the challenge, right? And that that was kind of like setting the challenge for the mindshare of F5 that's dealing with this market space, right? Saying, guys, the goal is not can we run our virtual appliance in AWS? Yes, we can. That, but that's not the end game. That shouldn't be the end game. The end game is how do we get to that that person, that developer, the people rolling out these things, and and show them that we can impact the environment, that we can give them services that will help them actually deliver these applications. I mean, we're talking big money here, right? Uh, Nintendo stock, I don't know, it was in the billions that it went up, and it, I know it's backed off since then. Um, but you think about it, you've got three companies there. You've got Google uh, through Niantic, and then Google through Google Cloud. So it's two parts of Google, really. Uh, I think Niantic may have been spun off. They may be their own company now, so if they are, they are. You've got Nintendo, which owns the Pokemon brand, and then you've got Apple there, right? Because you've still got iOS running these things. Now think about those three companies. Those are the three companies that really don't want to play well together, right? Google doesn't want to play well with Apple because Google does Android and Apple does iOS. But Apple's taken a 30% cut of all the revenue from Pokemon Go. So it's interesting, that dynamic, when you start peeling it back, you're like, wow, dude, this shouldn't yeah. work. You forgot Google Play Store too, right? I mean, they're making some right. money on that thing too. 
Exactly. Yeah. So everybody's got, the, and there's, there's huge dollars involved with these sorts of things. And, and I know it's just a game and a lot of people see it at that, but I look at it like, man, that's a massive like computing problem to solve. Public cloud is definitely the best way to deliver that sort of infrastructure. But there's this little middle ground where we're saying, hey, there, if we could have gotten to those developers, if we can get to those guys and say, hey, we've we've got solutions to bring to bear that, that work into your tool chain. And uh, I'm sure... Being Google, right, they're a fully agile, continuously integrated development process, right? They write code and ship code and continuously integrate into their environment. Same with Facebook, right? Facebook, when they write code, I mean, it, it doesn't sit in a test bed for, for months. It's tested live. Uh, it's tested internally. It's tested live. And then it's rolled out to a full production um, set of servers. Um, and, and that's the tool chain that we're actually uh, working to integrate with, right, is making us part of that continuous integration tool chain. Um, one of the things that one of the, the kind of, you know, moonshot ideas that I have in my head is uh, for, for web application firewalls, right? So it's for security services for web applications. And I always say, man, you know, right now and, and for a lot of years, the market, what they've done is they've said, all right, we're going to sniff uh, traffic on, on the wire. We're going to look at traffic that's going to an application and then we're going to kind of divine a policy out of that, right? So you're going to take a statistical sample. You're going to figure out, hey, okay, this is what the traffic looks like. And then when things violate that statistical norm and that baseline, that's when you start saying, okay, this is a, a, an issue, right? You're going to alert on that and everything else. And, and I, I, you know, that's that's good. I think I don't think that's a bad way of doing things. But I will say that my view of it as an app developer is, well, I wrote the application, so why can't I give you the schema? Like when I was writing applications. We define the inputs to our application very carefully, right? Those are all written down or documented somewhere. And uh, and I can't, you know, I posed this idea to a customer the other day. I was like, dude, get me in front of a developer that can give me the schema, the inputs for their application, because they may not know what to do with that. But me, as a guy that knows web application firewalls, I can take that and say, let me create a perfect web application firewall policy for your application. I know all the inputs. I know what you know length fields are. I know what the type of data is. I know what should be there, what shouldn't be there. I can divine a lot more information and add a lot more context to that metadata that you can give me if I can talk to your developer, right? So, so that's kind of the the thing that we're looking at. So, we we build these things. We're looking to transform and say, all right, now let's let's look, take that step or that idea a little further. You're, you're a developer, you're working on a code base, right? You check in a change, and with that change, um, you're going to fire off some continuous integration process, which is test dev, it's all these other things, these little worker bees that go off and do things. One of those worker bees should be, hey, take the F5 well, WAF policy generator and run it against the code that was just checked in and update that policy and then deploy that in your test environment automatically, right? That's what we're getting to. Once it passes your test environment, we take that policy and we stick it into your production environment. And that may be in a public cloud. That may be in you know, a hyper-converged infrastructure in a data center. Whatever that is, I don't really care about the form factor anymore. What I care about is I have that layer seven policy, that thing that's useful for the customer. And now I can take that and implement that wherever I need to. And maybe that's public cloud. Maybe that's uh, on legacy compute, maybe that's uh, in a private cloud use case or a hyperconverge. Maybe it's on an SDN. Maybe it's in Docker. Whatever. Who cares, right? Um, but we have the piece that we need 
to actually go affect a change in the environment and add a service that's valuable. So that's kind of what we're working towards. We're not, you know, fully there yet, but this is the the mindset and the shift in thinking that F5 um, is now bringing to the table. And we're saying, look, we we really need to stop thinking about um, automation and and building these services the way that we've been doing it. And we need to start thinking how do we how do we integrate into this tool chain, right? This massively automated kind of ship as fast as you can and get it into production tool chain. How do you do that and still keep something running? That's the challenge, right? How do we do that in a reliable manner that we're not breaking things? Because that, by the way, is one of the things F5 is pretty good at is not breaking stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, man, and the, like this is the, especially the, the from the load balancing perspective or getting into your data center, that's not where you want to drop the ball at all. So you have to be obviously careful and in, in delivering different uh, capabilities and, and new feature sets to to the products. Absolutely. So, hey, um, I wanted to talk about uh, peanut butter sandwiches for a second. Peanut butter sandwiches. All right, it's let's do full, it. I'm full of uh, I'm full of nice little uh, examples like this. So, so we're going to talk about peanut butter sandwiches and drive-through menus. Uh-oh. Perfect. Now, I let's feel like we're it. getting into a Chad Sackage talk because he loves to talk about <laughs> Uh, you know, curated experiences with food and there's fine dining and then there's buffets and then there's the drive through and they're all curated food experiences with different uh, goals and different outcomes. So I, there's a standing contest to work the word curated into as many conversations as we can. There's yeah. a point that we must. Yeah. So, so I might. Yeah. You're going to have to enter me in that contest because I will win it. Yeah. You can enter me right meow. There you go. So, so peanut butter sandwiches. Um, I, I, and I, you know, when I was in school, I had to do this a couple times. I think I did this once in high school, and I did it once in college. And I don't know if you guys had this experience, but you know, you had some public speaking class or something like that. And one of the assignments would be go up there and explain how to make a thing. A peanut butter sandwich was what I used, which is like the the typical, like stereotypical thing there, right? And uh, it's funny because I, I did that and, and I, you know, it was, it was in my memory and I, I think I killed it because I'm very detailed like that. So, you know, mine was a 82 steps uh, to make a peanut butter sandwich type situation. Um, <laughs> but, but the thing is, I was thinking about this the other day and, and we have, um, you know, when we're looking at automation, there's two big camps uh, in the world uh, that you can actually kind of put things into. There's there's this thing called imperative processes or imperative automation, and then there's another thing called declarative processes or declarative automation. And I use peanut butter sandwiches in the process of making a peanut butter sandwich to explain imperative processes. And I do this in front of customers all the time. Um, and I do it because sometimes you got to step away from the technology, right, to understand what the real problem is. So so let's do this. Let's make a peanut butter sandwich, right? Five steps to make a peanut butter sandwich. You gather your ingredients, you get your bread out, you get your peanut butter, you get a knife, you take some peanut butter out of the jar, you put it on one side of the bread, you specifically tell the person to put the bread on top of the peanut butter, not under the other slice of bread, because then you have a mess. And then you, you now you got a sandwich, you use your knife to cut that uh, sandwich in, in half or whatever, right? Which half, though? Diagonal? Right. Or oh, yeah, see, see this, is, this is why I use this example. So let's let's talk about a couple of things here. We're gonna go on that one, Brian. That's a good one, but you, you got ahead of me. So tell me something here. So I used the term earlier called it was domain specific knowledge, right? Domain specific knowledge is assumptions. So what are assumptions? I have five steps, peanut butter sandwich, every adult in the world can do this. But what is the domain specific knowledge in this process? Give me some uh, domain specific knowledge. Would it be like uh, white or wheat bread or something like that? 
Not quite. So domain-specific knowledge is, do you know what bread is? Do you no. know how to use a knife? Do you know how to open a jar? So right? some things that you brought with you before the process started. Exactly. It's stuff that you knew, and any adult would know that. But if I go and ask, you know, I've got four-year-old twins. If I go and ask my four-year-old, they cannot complete this process because I won't let them near knives right now. They don't know how to use a knife, right? Come on, Dad. Yeah, well, you know, well, <laughs> maybe a blunt knife, but not a sharp one, right? Um, they may, you know, you got to be careful, man. These kids nowadays, they're going around stabbing people. It's not you need good. to get some baby hinkles. <laughs> so, so this like, just got awkward. Issue. Let's go on to, um, let's make a sandwich. Let's talk. <laughs> so, and then, yeah, so Brent, you brought up one, right? You want wider wheat. Uh, Brian, you brought it up another. Are you cutting it in half? Are you cutting it diagonally or into quarters? And so here's the problem. This is a real world problem, right? This is what happens when you go and try to do something in IT. You start with something that's fairly straightforward. You know, like I want to go deploy um, a load balanced virtual server, right? And on the surface, you're like, dude, that's easy. We got this. We've done this 20 times, right? And then the server team comes in and he's like, hey, but I need this header added. And then the security team comes in and says, well, yeah, but we need this other stuff. Your infrastructure team comes in and says, well, no, we need to meet the scale target, right? So what happens in this imperative process is you end up branching it. When, I, when we started, we had this very linear process, right? Get bread, put peanut butter on it, put, it to, put the other piece of bread on there, and then cut the sandwich. That was a linear process. Well, now, if you say, well, I want wheat bread, we have to fork that. Now we've created two parallel processes based on a decision, right? And every decision or every little option that you have ends up creating this fork in this this process. This is a multiverse. And now we're getting into like physics. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? It's a <laughs> string theory and, and stuff like that. So here's the problem. Here's, us, how, here's how I tie this back to, um, to F5. The issue that we have is we live in the layer four through seven space and the number of options in the layer four through seven space, I don't even think we could enumerate it. The number's too big, right? It can't fit in the universe type number, right? And so if I tried to apply an imperative process to everything you could do for, let's say, a web application firewall or for our identity and access management, like SAML Federation and all these other features that we have, these great solutions that we have. But if we try to imply this process to it, we'll never get to the point where we can actually get things done in customer environments, okay? Because there's just too much of it, right? There's too many things and there's too much domain-specific knowledge. So the goal here is, and the reason I use this is this is where most customers are right now. In fact, forget about F5, but if you go and talk to customers, this is where they're stuck. They're stuck in this world where they've got all this infrastructure, they're trying to automate it, and they're trying to do it with an imperative process. They're trying to say, I'm going to write a couple scripts, and it's going to do a couple things, and, and, and that's going to be great. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we advocate that quite a bit. And the reason I advocate it is probably a different reason than most people think about um, we go in and one of the first things we do is say, give me the top 10 things. I do this regularly in front of customers. Say, give me the top 10 things that are just a total pain for you to deal with, with our platform every day, whatever that is. Right. Um, and I say, we're just going to give you scripts. We're going to automate. You can get you know, professional services. We'll figure out a way to take that, that burden off of you. And the reason is because you're spending too much time on it. This is not about automation. It's about the number of people hours that are being spent doing a thing that could be automated. And so our first step is to go in and say, look, let's take those workflows, those imperative workflows that you have, wrap some automation around it to give you some time. 
Because what I need from customers and what I need from the DevOps folks and from the people that are using our platform is time to actually go do something else to solve the problem. Because doing imperative automation and, and trying to solve the problem that way actually doesn't solve the problem because of the fact that there's too many options, right? You, you're going to choose between white and wheat bread. Uh, is it is it creamy or chunky peanut butter? Uh, do you Don't want ever, butter? Hey, do bread? not ever say creamy peanut butter to me again. <laughs> I'm a chunky peanut butter. <laughs> Moist, too, creamy so. peanut butter. Uh, Stop someone, it. Someone, uh, someone said that they butter their peanut butter sandwiches, which I was like, ah, I don't know about wow. that, man. I don't know if I can trust you anymore. But, <laughs> but you know, this is the problem. And, and if you look in the Layer 4 through 7 world, this is exactly what happens when we try to go implement something is we have so many knobs, so many options, protocols have so many options, you get into this never-ending rat's nest of, of things that you could automate, right? So the first step is find the top 10 things that are taking time and just figure those out. Whatever the, where, however they sit in the environment, don't try to make them better, don't make them worse, don't cause an outage, but just take what's there and make it better and get some of that time back. And the time that we get back, that's where we go into drive-through menus, right? So there's a there's the polar opposite of this imperative process of making a peanut butter sandwich and the the polar opposite of that is is your local drive through so uh let's see we're going to use what should we use today what's your oh. favorite drive well let's just do waterburger cuz it's top of mind let's just waterburger yeah, yeah texas there we go all right so so here's what i say to people when you go to waterburger do you really care how, what happens behind that window I, I care like, a little bit i care about the cleanliness just a tiny bit just enough that i don't know that that no i i don't want to see dirty if dirty right. happens and i don't know about it i'm okay i've lived through that before i don't want to see it so yes so you want you want so in my world right in in my geek mind when you say I don't want to see there. I was like, well, you want a clean API interface, right? You want something that looks really nice on the outside. That drive-through window is nice and sparkly. The pavement is clean. There's not, you know, orange juice or orange soda spilled everywhere, right? You want this facade that's been created. Um, and you're going to go up. You're going to order. Uh, you're going to order your Whataburger with cheese. Uh, I get mine with grilled jalapenos and onions. Yes. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> So, so you're going to go there, and I don't care what happens behind the facade to deliver that. I just want that because I'm like, I'm hungry, I'm on the road, I need, I got five minutes to eat, and I, you know, I just want my uh, my burger. I try to lay off the fries lately because you know I've been traveling a lot, so I'm like, no fries, I'm going to be healthy, and uh, and so you get to the window, you get your burger, and you didn't care what happened in the back end, right? And this is the 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 core tenant of what we call a declarative process. I declared that I want a Whataburger with cheese with, uh, you know, with grilled onions and jalapenos. And then the, the infrastructure behind it went and built that. And that may be through some imperative process or some other thing. And then you pull up to the window and they deliver that to you. They deliver that service to you, right? And that's the world that actually cloud, if we had to use a, a all-encompassing term, when you think about cloud, that is the fundamental thing that people are expecting, right? Um, so what we're trying to do there, what have we done? And I, I have a slide on this. I wish we can't show the slide on a podcast, obviously, but I have a slide. Yeah, this thing's audio only, so you're going to have to figure <laughs> it out. Use your big boy so words. I'm going to describe the slide, and it's a very subtle joke in the slide. The slide is a, uh, it's a McDonald's drive-thru, um, but the, it's not a car going through the drive-thru. It's a horse and buggy. And I always use that as a joke to say that we are trying to reduce domain-specific knowledge, right? You're trying to make this thing as simple as possible. In fact, 
I did a little research on this. It's fascinating how much work goes into those drive-through menus. Um, when you see the pictures, people always complain, well, what I get delivered in my little sandwich wrapper never looks like the picture, right, uh, on the drive-through menu. Well, fast food companies do that on purpose. What they do is they make the picture show it shows you every ingredient in the sandwich. Like, if you go and put get pickles on your thing, you never see the pickles when you're eating the sandwich. But if you look at the picture, you'll see two little pickles poking out. And the reason for that is because everybody can look at that picture and know exactly what they're getting and not have to ask a lot of questions, which means for that fast food restaurant, you're not tying up the line, which means they can get to deliver more burgers. So there's a lot of like research that went into this fascinating. That's right? a very curated consumption experience there. Right, exactly, right? So it's fascinating how much work goes into it. But that is a that is what we're trying to deliver, right? So I I equate that, I equate this menu to something called a service catalog, right? The service catalog is our menu, right? And for each item in that service catalog, you know, in the tech world, we're going to have some document that describes exactly what you're getting and exa exactly what we need, right? We need you to tell us what you want and if you want to modify it, right? You want extra special sauce or something like that. You want jalapenos, all that stuff. Here's the options that you have. They're not infinite options, but you can modify this a little bit. And then you're going to send us a clean API call, right? You're going to we're going to have this facade set up that says everything is clean and shiny and nothing untowards is going on behind this window, right? Everybody back here has washed their hands. <laughs> nothing has ended up on the floor type situation. Uh, and then the infrastructure, the, the imperative or even declarative processes behind the scene, I call this magic. And in my slide, it's, it's a wizard with the word magic because that's what it is. Magic happens and then you get delivered your thing, the service that you want to consume. So this is... This is uh, the, the methodology that we're going with and going to customers and saying, look, you have to take care of this problem that you have right now with your existing stuff, right? You got to deal with that. And so let's do that. Let's use automation. Let's use an imperative automation, scripting, whatever, to figure that out because that's not, that's not ever going to solve the problem for you in a cloud world. In a cloud world, what we need to do is step back give you some time, first of all, to consume this stuff, and then start looking through it through this declarative lens, right? And the declarative lens is what we're going to deliver to developers, right? And people that don't have domain-specific knowledge. It's not okay for me to go to a developer and say, hey, dude, uh, cool, you want to use a F5 service, or you want to use a widget from vendor X. Go to training for two years so you understand every intricacy of that widget, and then you're good to go. You can do whatever you want. Well, nobody wanted that. Again, nobody wanted whatever, you know, nobody wanted every option. People wanted a specific thing from the infrastructure, and they wanted to do that as fast as possible and then move on with their day. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking at and, and, and actually delivering right now to customers, right? We go in and we say, all right, let's create this service catalog. Let's, let's take your services and templatize them. We've got all this automation stuff in the back end. But when you do this, the nice thing about it is I can now plug in whatever infrastructure I want to on the back end of that. Because remember, I didn't tell you how those burger patties got delivered to the restaurant. Did they come on a train? Did they come on a truck? Did a guy carry a box in there? Like All of that stuff was hidden away. And so for us, for F5, that's really powerful because now I can say, hey, Mr. Developer, you want to deliver this service. Uh, one of the options you get to pick is what infrastructure is that service uh, laid down on, right? Is it a public cloud infrastructure? Is that going to a production setup? Maybe that's a different environment. But the developer can just say target this environment, target this cost, whatever, or target for performance, whatever metric they want to use. And we can figure that out on the back end, right? There's, there's hundreds of things that need to happen 
we got to license the box, we got to put IPs, all that stuff on there, but the developer should never have to deal with that. They should never have to even look at it. All they should have to do is, hey, I need a number one, I need special sauce on it, and I expect it in five minutes. That's it. So That's what we're trying to do. And you mentioned you're fresh off of agility, right? And so obviously it sounds like a lot of your focus at agility was on developers and how you guys can change the way that you're really talking to customers and solving the new problems rather than the old problems as well, which uh, you're clearly very good at. So uh, did you do this kind of, did you do this conversation at agility? This one here? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So is it publicly available where people can go watch the, the, the speech or is it uh, behind some paywall or what's up with that? No, it is actually out on GitHub. So um, if you uh, go to GitHub, it's um, github.com slash F5 Dev Central. Um, and under that, there's a repository uh, called F5 Postman Collections. Postman is a tool that we use quite a bit in training. Uh, we're going to organize this a little better. Uh, myself and uh, my colleague Nathan Pierce, actually, uh, he was the, the co-author of a lot of this stuff with me. Um, but what we did is uh, we wanted to get the, the content out to everybody as fast as possible. So um, what you've got there, when you go there to F5 Postman Collections, um, you're going to see a full lab guide. Um, and I've got to put the, the slides up there. In fact, I just realized that they're not there. So I'm going to do that right after we finish recording this. Uh, you'll see a PowerPoint there that actually shows you the peanut butter uh, sandwich slide and the drive through slide. So you guys can see that. Um, and then we've got postman collections there that go through uh, both imperative automation and declarative automation to start getting customers used to these things. So that's kind of the new mantra for, for F5 and for the content that we create for, for basically all our markets, not just cloud, but, but really going and we're trying to train our guys on this. We train our professional services on it and then we train customers as soon as that's done. Um, it goes out on GitHub or on Dev Central. It goes out somewhere so customers can consume it. So um, we're we're trying to be as open um, about this stuff as possible. We've got a lot of things. I think most customers are actually surprised at how much we have out there. Um, but again, it's one of these things where there's so much information to consume that it's it's really hard. It's really easy to get overwhelmed. So GitHub.com slash F5 Dev Central. The repository name is F5 Postman Collections. And you'll see a PDF in there. There'll be a PowerPoint um, or at least a PDF version of the PowerPoint there, too. And there's Postman collections that anybody can go consume right now. Cool. So, Hitesh, uh, I, when, I, when, I, when I started searching you and researching for the podcast, the name Dev, well, you were, you were attributed with a lot of stuff in Dev Central. So I want to find out about Dev Central. I, I, I dug into it and got some pretty cool stats on what it is, but I would love to hear your opinion and your take and, and let our listeners know what you guys are doing. I mean, you talked a lot about just the whole like kind of DevOps and, and, and talking to the app dev team yep. um, from your perspective, but what is Dev Central specifically trying to do and why was it, why was it curated? So <laughs> there you go, curated. Um, so Dev Central is a, is a user community. In fact, I, I, I you know, it's funny because um, nowadays you're, you're going to hear things like GitHub, you hear things like Stack Overflow, read the docs, things like that. And I always like to say, like, man, we had all those things. We had that before. Before GitHub was cool, we had DevCentral. We had CodeShare on there. We had uh, wikis and all that stuff. So, so DevCentral is our user community. And when I say user community, it's it's for customers. It's for our partners. Um, but it's also for our five employees, right? This is how and, – and, in fact, we have – we have people from product development that are on DevCentral answering questions every day. So this is the forum that we use. Um, DevCentral itself is going through a little bit of a transition. And, and the reason for that is 
Uh, we've learned, right? What are, I didn't publish, by the way, so we talked about the agility content. I published that on GitHub, right? I didn't publish it on Dev Central. Um, now, there is an article on Dev Central that references all the GitHub repositories. And what we're doing with Dev Central now is actually transforming it into integrations with all these other sites. And, and the reason is, frankly, because the DevOps community wants to use GitHub, right? Um, I want to integrate, again, the automation story is integrate with everything, right? Integrate with AWS, integrate with Azure, integrate with ACI, NSX, OpenStack, integrate the best way we possibly can with all these ecosystems. And that flows right into Dev Central. Dev Central was a user community, it was FI specific. And what we're doing right now, and you'll see that with that GitHub account, F5 Dev Central GitHub account, right, is we're trying to actually use the tools that the DevOps community is using, right? So GitHub, um, all my documentation, I've got a couple IAPs. If you look at my personal uh, GitHub repository, uh, it's 0x Hitesh Patel. Uh, um, if you look at that repository, there's a very useful IAP in there. And uh, right now I'm going through and, and redoing the documentation. So we use Read the Docs, which is a common... Uh, site out there that, that we can publish documentation on. looks really nice, got search built in, really cool stuff, right? So we're trying to use all these uh, these tools and the ecosystem that's out there that, that all the developers are friendly with. Um, one of the things I like to say is like internally, uh, it's funny, um, we've been using Git. So whenever I, um, if I'm committing code for a project that's internal, uh, we actually use Git internally and we just never talked about it right and f5 is a company that was kind of like the wall and it's like well that happens in product development and then we're going to ship an iso to you and that's the product right um we're evolving that now to say well the product is that definitely because we have to have the base platform but part of the integration is also out living on github in fact um, there's another repository it's called f5 networks um, github.com slash f5 networks and if you look in there um, you'll see all of our OpenStack integrations. Um, those those repositories, um, we have a team in Boulder, um, and when you see commits to those repositories, that is an F5 developer that has gone through, put that into our you know internal Git repository. It's gone into our test framework and everything, and as soon as the test framework completes and says, hey, this didn't blow anything up, it automatically commits that publicly to GitHub, right? Um, there's a huge step. It's a huge change in the way that F5 does things. Um, we're trying to go into that full developer mentality. So if a developer wants to go and say, hey, I want the latest and greatest OpenStack driver, or I want to go see the commit log, I want to go see what changed, uh, or I want to do a pull request and add my own feature and then merge that back, that's already possible. That's possible with a number of our integrations already, uh, and we're continuing to evolve that and, and get as much stuff out there. Um, so the future for Dev Central, we're going to keep, we're going to integrate more. I think Dev Central will become more of a content repository, wiki type information, documentation, um, and then articles. My colleague uh, Nathan Pierce, if you search for him on Dev Central, by the way, the site, the name for Dev Central is devcentral.f5.com. If you go there and look at uh, for Nathan Pierce, uh, Nathan takes a lot of the stuff. Uh, we create a lot of that content jointly. Um, sometimes I create some of that. My colleagues create that. Nathan goes through and like puts the polish on that stuff. So I'm an engineer. So I, you know, my documentation is very engineering specific. I've tried to step out of that and do peanut butter sandwiches and drive-throughs and things like that lately. Um, but there's still a lot of it's very engineering focused. 
And Nathan does a great job of taking that and creating Dev Central articles, creating a, a curriculum that a, a customer or a partner or anyone that wants to learn about the technology can go through and say, all right, here, let's start at the beginning and walk through this and quickly onboard you to something that's useful. Right. Well, so, I think you guys are doing, yeah, you guys are doing something right. I mean, if I just the stats on the page was 250,000 oh, yeah. plus users. Yep. And and I think that the, the motto was um, give code, get code. So yep. it sounds like you guys are doing a phenomenal job kind of curating that community and uh, people are, are, are responding to it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, and, and I always say like, you know, it's, uh, when I'm talking to developers, I'm like, "Hey, dude, go to Dev Central. Like, you'll that is that is you're dealing. So, so as an app dev guy, I don't want to ever pick up the phone, right? I want to like I am someone, or I want to post it somewhere, and then a magic uh, magically an answer appears, right? I don't want to deal with humans that much sometimes. Um, and and Dev Central is a great way to do that, man. We have we have not only F5 internal people, but you got customers out there. Like that's what I say, man. It's a community of people that are solving problems in the real world, right? You may be talking and you may not know it, but there are people on there that are running huge infrastructures. They're running online banking applications. They're running, you know, huge projects for the government, um, you know, things, critical services for, for hospitals and things like that. And as far as you're concerned, it's just a dude with a handle on Dev Central, right? But you're, you're getting access to people that you would never meet in your professional life. But Dev Central is a great way to go through, pose a question, and more often than not, if you don't get an F5 or answering it, you're going to have a customer or a partner coming and saying, hey, we did it this way. This is really cool. You should check this out, right? Um, so it's a community, man. And, and we've had it for a while. I don't think we talk about it enough. Um, it's, there's definitely a lot of people in there. And we're evolving that community to fit in with the new DevOps model. And then we've been doing, in fact, last month, I think, was Programmability Month on Dev Central. So if you want to learn about programmability, they had, they had a different session, a different lightboard session or article or something uh, on programmability for every day last month. And there's a lot of content up there around that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of information there. I can't ever get through all of it. It's it's amazing how much stuff is there. I'll, I'll constantly be surprised by customers who say, hey, I found this on DevSimple. I was like, where'd you find that, dude? I'll go look. I'm like, damn, somebody already solved that problem. I shouldn't have spent my time on it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So there's a mantra cool. with an F5. You, there, there's three things, uh, you know, our version of RTFM, um, for SEs is, uh, you know, first of all, you go search our ask.f5, which is our public kind of repository of, of knowledge base, right? And then you go search Dev Central, and then you go search the internal questions board. And if you don't do those three things first b before asking a question, then you're going to get your hand slapped a little bit because more often than not, you're going to find your answer in one of those three things. And, and usually it's actually in Dev Central. <laughs> right on. Well, cool. Let's shift gears before we shut this thing down. So um, this is kind of a, you know, I mean, we've been talking industry and and, and getting with the community and, and our users and, and the customers. Um, but one kind of trend that that's that's there, it's growing. Um, there's there's no way denying it is this you know Internet of Things, right? So IoT. Uh, we know that the 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 space is growing. Um, everything's getting a sensor in it, and everybody wants the data. And there's forecasts that are saying that there's going to be up to fill it. Philly, 50 billion um, devices by 2020. So, so my question to you is, what does that mean to to F5? And and what are you hearing from, from consumers and customers that are out there um, with regard to IoT and then your space um, at F5? Yeah, so so you know the the thing about IoT, there's there's a couple things there, right? There's um, there's scalability, um, and and people look at IoT that you, you'll hear about mesh networks and things like that, and 
And I use, in fact, I've, I've got a couple devices in my house right here. I've got a smart garage door opener that tells me when I drive off, if my garage door is open, I can hit a button on my phone and close it. I've got a, I've got a Nest thermostat, right? Um, I've got a Ring doorbell, by the way. If you haven't, I'm going to plug the Ring doorbell. It's awesome. I live in a neighborhood that has some teenagers that get bored during the summer. And uh, it's, it's awesome having video of them trying to mess around with my doorbell. Um, and then just posting it on our little community Facebook page saying, hey, uh, <laughs> tell your kids to quit trying to leave stuff on my porch, right? Um, but the, the thing about that is is um, you're dealing with massive scale problems, right? So you've got all these devices out there. The, my Nest is feeding data back into the Google hive mind. So they know everything about my habits, uh, at least temperature-wise. Um and, and all of that is coming in. And I think, you know, there's two parts to that, right? First of all, there's the infrastructure problem, which we definitely deal with. Um, a lot of the things around IoT, um, what you have to worry about is these devices are implemented on very lightweight hardware, right? So the way these manufacturers make money on these devices is by making sure that it doesn't cost them too much to produce it. Um, and as a result of that, they're offloading a lot of the security functions and things like that into the back-end services rather than implementing them on uh, the device. Um, so one of the examples of that um, is, um, you know, you've got a lot of devices out there. They'll say that they speak SSL, um, you know, over the open Internet. Um, but the way they do that um, to save on hardware cost is uh, they use something called pre-shared keys, right? So the keys are loaded at the factory and and you have to be able to deal with that on the infrastructure side because what you did when you did that pre-shared key is you took all the compute that's required for negotiating that secure session, you offloaded it to the back end so you could make a very cheap device to go out at the consumer side of things, right? Um, so we deal with those sorts of infra infrastructure issues, right? How do you deal with um, a pre-shared key environment where you've got a million of these things out there or maybe a billion of these IoT little devices out there, right? You can't just go and push a software upgrade to a lot of these devices. We're seeing that right now. In fact, at DEF CON, Black Hat, you're seeing more and more of these IoT devices get pulled apart. And people are like, wow, man, you can't upgrade this thing. It's it's out there. A garage door opener is not going to get replaced every year, right? Um, so how do you deal with those things? And that's one of the things that we, we bring to the table in that environment is helping on the infrastructure side making sure that you can scale that, but also wrap security around that. And, and in some cases, what we do what we call soft patching. Soft patching in the IoT world, I actually think becomes permanent patching because there's no other way to do it, right? Um, but we can go in and change the data, change and, and add security at the ADC layer um, so that we can block security attacks or, or vulnerabilities right there um, rather than um, having to go through and touch the individual devices out there. Um, so I think we've got a huge scale problem. We definitely, that's our bread and butter. We deal with scale every day. We do that. Um, that's our bread and butter. But I think the security aspects of IoT um, are infinitely more interesting to me. Um, the other thing is, you know, when you're looking at these infrastructures, for me, let's say if I'm a bad guy, right? So I always like to put on my, my, my bad hat, right, my black hat, and say, all right, if I'm a bad guy, what do I want to do? I'm not going to target someone's garage door opener. I mean, that's the small fish, right? I'm going to target the infrastructure that's running that and try and find a vulnerability, try and find a SQL injection to go find all the garage door openers and then send that command that goes from the app to open a bunch of them in the street that I'm on so I can go steal a bunch of crap, right? That it, that's, that's the mentality that you have to have with IoT is that 
you've got all these devices and they're they're taking over core functions, locks on doors. Like that's one of the key things, right? You lock your door, you know it's secure. Except now you can put your smartphone and link it to your door lock. And now what if somebody compromises the back end infrastructure and just sends that little rest call to that device and says, hey, unlock the door, right? That device usually, and we're seeing that in the market right now, hopefully the vendors that are creating these devices get a little more uh, strict on how they implement things. But we're seeing that already be a problem, right? Where they've implemented very, for lack of a better word, dumb devices that just take commands from an infrastructure and they'll unlock your door, right? Um, so, so that's where we're playing. And I think the security aspect of that is, is pretty big. I think there's a lot of functionality we can bring to bear uh, to help with that and to protect that infrastructure, but also to help enable scale and, and true security in those environments. Cool. Well, awesome, Hitesh. You've, you've provided us with a, a wealth of knowledge, um, but we're going to shut this thing down. So first question I want to know is where can we find you next, right? You just spoke at AgilityConf or F5 Agility. Um, <clears throat> Are you going to be speaking at any anything coming up? Where can where can we find you? So um, I'm on Twitter, um, and that's uh, that's the easiest way uh, to to get a hold of me. If you want to get a hold of me directly, it's at uh, f5hitesh. Uh, and uh, hopefully after this thing, I'll, I'm going to double my Twitter followers to what 18. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm we, getting a, I'm getting on the Twitter bandwagon, man. I just I just <laughs> want to know, Brent. I didn't actually go look. Does he have a picture up there, or is he still an egg? No, am I, am I an egg? No, no you're it's an you. actual you're not an egg. Sunglasses. On. That's awesome. I do. Do I have a picture on there? Yeah, that's good. That is because yeah. if you're uh, an but... egg, we can't we can't do that. So, <laughs> then I'm dead to you. But you know, get out there. Uh, you know, get uh, you know. If you start connecting with people the way you have here, I think you're gonna have point. You might have like 24 followers by the end of the week. Oh wow, man! Yeah. I, I don't know what I'm gonna do with all that attention. Yeah, Monet- it's gonna, it's gonna go to my it. head. Monetize <laughs> it. I mean, you, know, you give people yeah, a so... curated experience on Twitter, and they will follow you. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. So uh, you know, Twitter, and then if you're an F5 customer, uh, reach out to your account team. Um, it's not just me doing this stuff, right? I've got colleagues, I've got peers, we've got SEs that are out, you know, fighting this good fight every day, and and we're all kind of uh, singing the same tune. We're all uh, we're all out there trying to um, unmuddy the water, as I would say, in this environment. And I'll end it with this. I have a picture, but I can't show the picture because it's a podcast. Um, but I will say. You know, the the space that we're dealing with right now is full of what I call unicorns and rainbows, right? Um, and what we're trying to do is deliver more rainbows and less unicorns, things that we can actually deliver versus things that are mythical, right? Um, <laughs> and, and that's what F5 is focused on, right? Delivering solutions in whatever form factor you want. We're trying to get to developers. We're trying to enable people to go out and deliver awesome services to the world and, and you know, whatever that is, whether it's... Uh, uh, core service for you know for getting someone from point A to point B, uh, whether it's banking, whether it's a game like Pokemon Go, something like that. We want to impact people's lives like that. That's the true thing, and and there's infrastructure behind that, and and that's what we want to work with, right? We want to help make that happen for everyone. Awesome, I love it. Delivering rainbows, not unicorns. Perfect. Exactly. All day, so, every Hitesh, day. <laughs> Yeah. So, Hitesh, uh, thank you for, for being on the podcast. With that, we're going to shut it down. So, to those of you listening out there, but wait, again. But wait, there's more. But wait. Pause, but wait, there's more. I have but, I have a question. Oh, 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 go ahead. Yeah. So, Hitesh, you brought up peanut butter. I wrote this down like an hour ago. You brought up peanut butter sandwiches. But what yeah. really matters to me in my own heart uh, is the grilled cheese. So, oh. uh, I do have a question for you. All right. Um, you take something, it, what is a grilled cheese to you? 
What is a grilled cheese to me? It, it is, first of all, white bread. Uh-huh. And it's American cheese. Okay. That stuff that now, comes in the plastic. Yeah. The so, so and, and I won't say that I'm not a cheese snob. Like, honestly, like, I, I like cheese and everything else. But, and I'll give you, so here's a story. Um, you, you can't tell this from my accent, but I was actually born in England. I lived in England until uh, I was 13 years old. And uh, this story, this, this memory has stuck with me. Um, when, we, uh, when my family immigrated here, <clears throat> we landed in New York, right? Now, we didn't land on like Ellis Island and all that, but we, New York was where we, we flew from London and we landed at JFK. And I don't know, like I was a, I'm a product of the 80s, so I've seen all the, you know, coming to America and a bunch of those movies, right? And it was like New York was it. Like that's when you knew you'd arrived in America, and we're staying at the New York Hilton. And I never stayed at a hotel before. Like, this is totally new. And uh, we're tired. We get off the plane. We go to the New York Hilton. We, my dad got us, like, a, a limo, right? He's, like, doing the whole thing up. We saw the Statue of Liberty and all that stuff. We get to the hotel. And uh, the, we got there a little late. And, every, you know, the restaurant had closed down and everything else. So we're just sitting by the bar. And, and my dad goes and talks. He's like, hey, you know, we just got here. We're, we're from England. We're moving to America. And, uh, you know, I just, I want to give my kids the experience. So can you guess what they uh, made for us? Everything was shut down. All they had was like white bread, American cheese, and a Coke. And those, that was the best thing I've ever tasted. And that memory has stuck with me for years. So whenever I have a grilled cheese, that's what I have. Even though I could have all the fancy Gruyere and cheddar and all that stuff, that's what I want because it takes me back to that point. So now, I, this is why I'm asking this question. By the way, so far you're doing fantastic. This is why I'm asking a question. You know, these food trucks, even in, in New York, they're like, you know, it's the grilled cheese truck. And then yeah. you see on the menu, they, you know, sure, they could have a Gruyere one and all this other stuff. Then you see something that's like, it's got like maybe a tomato and some bacon and some things like that. So yeah, what is your stance here? Is that I, I will, a grilled cheese? I, in, so in pure terms, uh, no, that, well, first of all, tomato is a no go. Like there's no vegetables on a grilled cheese sandwich. What's going on? Bacon gets a pass because bacon gets a pass on anything. Right. Um, I would, I would prefer like a grilled cheese with a side of bacon. I think that's the perfect middle ground for me. Like it doesn't violate any of my deeply held, uh, things, but it also gives me bacon, which is always a good thing. So all that other stuff is a melt is what you're saying. Yeah, that it, exactly. Like it, grilled cheese is bread and cheese, man. And and you can get fancy with the cheese. That's cool. But to me, stop messing around with it, right? See, okay. this is this goes back to the. You're right. This is a peanut butter sandwich. Yeah, this is you're, you're back. Okay, I just wanted to, I just wanted to validate that you were in fact family, because if you had called something like a you know a grilled cheese and you throw a bunch of stuff on that and you still tried to call that a grilled cheese, we probably could not be family like we are now. Um, so, so here's a question. I think so Brian a, is being declarative right now. Yeah, I am. <laughs> if, if you get a BLT, is it acceptable to have cheese on a BLT? I, don't, I, I can't decide that. I don't think so because that's outside of the letters. No. no. Right? Well, exactly. You, but can, I have a, mail, you can have all sorts of creative BLs or Ts. You know, yes. you could have some heirlooms and you could have, you know, some crazy bacons and maybe even like, you know, maybe it could be pork belly or something. But yeah, you just messed it up again. Yeah. And it has to be toasted. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's good to know that you're family. I have one other question <laughs> before I let Brett shut this down. Your, your Pokemon Go, what's your mm -hmm. trainer level, and how many are in your Pokedex? You're, you're going to laugh. I don't play it. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> I don't even have the app. What's wrong I with just it? nerded out on it. <laughs> oh. 
Okay, so you're like an ingress purist. Like you can go. I have ingress, ingress yeah. but you can't. Yeah, play I played ingress. Go. I have not played Pokemon Go. Yeah, I can't. Oh. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Dude, I don't need another thing to for to distract me, right? I'm a little, <laughs> a little ADD as it is. So the last thing I need is uh, something else buzzing in my pocket saying, "Go do something other yeah. than what you should be doing." Well, the difference <laughs> between you and me, you, between difference between you and me, is my day started off awesome because I caught Blastoise this morning at Starbucks. And that was huge. That's nice. huge. Can we delete this from the podcast? No, we can't. <laughs> hey, so look, we're over. Brent, shut it down. I'm so tired of you just running your mouth and making this thing go over. Let's <laughs> let's do this thing. All right, awesome. So we're shutting it down officially. Um, but uh, thanks to our listeners, everyone, get social with us. Let us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and who you want to hear next, and what kind of topics you want to hear. Um, we're doing this for y'all, not for us. So let us know. With that, we'll shut down the hot aisle. My name is Brent Piotti. I'm Brian Carpenter. Thanks, Josh. We appreciate your time today. Hey, no problem, guys. Was I supposed to hit record? No. (laughs) This is just for us, man. I told you.